Hey, I'm Adrian Grenier. You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Cappy. One of the flaws in the American dream is it's all about the I. How can I get mine or how can I build my dream? But I really think if you build the dreams around you, you know, it becomes your dream. Season three of Beyond the Plate is presented by Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Hey everyone, this is Kathy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where I sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey with food and their passion for giving back. Every episode, we share inspiring stories of what it means to be in today's hospitality industry. This season, we welcome a group of celebrities that have a connection to the world of food. Whether they host a food show, have a cookbook, or simply give back through food, we're excited to have them join us on Beyond the Plate. A big thank you to last season partner... And again, this season, formerly called Isle 8 by Flavor Gallery, and now called Beyond the Plate by Flavor Gallery. They supply all of our signature hats and t-shirts to our Beyond the Plate guests. After teasing this merchandise during most of season two, it is now available to all of you. If you'd like to get your hands on some of this merch, check out beyondtheplatepodcast.com and click on apparel to get yours. All right, back to it. For this episode, we sat with Adrian Grenier. Talk about someone who gives back. This guy weaves in philanthropy and social impact to just about everything he does. In fact, when I was talking to him, he was taking a break from gardening because he has a home in Austin, Texas, and a little plot of land on it that he knew he was not going to be able to tend to. So he reached out to some of his neighbors to give them a small plot of the land to use to garden. Pretty great idea. Anyhow, I came across a lot of Adrian's work with his Lonely Whale project. He was implementing some of their classroom activities at a school that I've done some work with called the Academy for Global Citizenship, an incredible school in Chicago on the Southwest side. Beyond this all, Adrian is super into cooking. He's very mindful of what he puts in his body, of sustainability when it comes to what he's cooking or putting into his body. He's just really a big food lover at heart. Now for the more formal stuff. Adrian Grenier is an actor, filmmaker, musician, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. He's best known for a starring role as Vincent Chase on Entourage, one of HBO's most popular half-hour series in the network's history. He played a role opposite Meryl Streep and Anne Hathaway in The Devil Wears Prada and in the romantic comedy Drive Me Crazy. He's also been part of multiple Woody Allen films and plenty of other on-screen roles. He's been part of multiple documentaries, including the documentary 52, which chronicles the search for the loneliest whale in the world. Put a pin in that for now. Beyond all this, he's a musician and founder of Rec Room Records, a music incubator for emerging artists that has aided and promoted dozens of rising young performers and bands. He's an investor and advisor to emerging technology ventures and a passionate environmentalist who actively supports organizations focusing on habit-changing education. All right, take that tack out. In 2015, Grenier co-founded Lonely Whale, Dedicated to bringing people closer to the world's ocean through education and awareness, the aim is to inspire empathy for marine life and action for ocean health. On World Environment Day, June 2017, Grenier was appointed a UN Environment Program Goodwill Ambassador through which he advocates for a collaborative approach to address our environmental issues. He's had a major impact on reducing the amount of plastics in oceans, more specific, the banning of plastic straws, which... I'm guessing nearly everybody has heard about. Anyhow, this dude does not stop. 
But I will stop here and please enjoy this conversation as we go beyond the plate with Adrian Grenier. Hey, Adrian, how you doing? Great, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for hopping on the line. So we're doing this special celeb season, talking to different celebrities who have a connection, you know, to food or love food and and how they give back. And as we were concocting this, you know, season, I was like, we must talk to Adrian. Just, you know, I, I know a little of what you do. And as I looked into it more, I was like, holy crap, this guy does more probably in a day to give back to the world than some people do in a lifetime. I know a fair amount of the work that you do through Lonely Whale Foundation, as well as, you know, through AGC and whatnot. And I can't wait to talk about all that. But like, just just to set the stage, are you home now? Are you in New York now? No, I'm in Austin. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm actually here uh, building a community garden as we speak. I mean, in fact, I'm taking a little break from it to do this. So it's kind of on message. That's amazing. Is that through an organization down there? No, it's just, uh, you know, for me, it's just, a, it's, it's not about giving back or doing charity as this addendum to your life or something you do uh, on Sundays to you know, make good with God. To me, it's just a integrated lifestyle choice. Um, so really I try and integrate giving back into absolutely everything, every aspect of my life. Um, and so I, I actually fallen in love with Austin over the years and I've been spending a lot of time here really at where I am in life. I really enjoy the pace, very laid back, uh, low key. I grew up in New York, so I needed a break and even LA as, as chill as it is there, you know, it's still, it's still a lot of energy. So I, I've been really coming here often to just unwind and I have a little house on the East side and I have this part of the property that's primed and ready for a garden. Uh, but instead of building a fence and making it my own little private garden, that's, you know, going to be only used a couple times a year when I, when I'm around, I decided to give it to the neighborhood. So I invited a bunch of my neighbors around to take a plot. There's about eight plots or so. And each, each of the, my neighbors get a plot and we're bringing some of the neighborhood kids in to help out. And, Taking taking my cues, of course, from Sarah Elizabeth at Academy for Global Citizenship and all, all my love for Alice Waters and Edible Schoolyard and even the stuff that I've been doing around education and um, food, getting your hands dirty as a, as a means to learn by doing about the, the, the food that you create and, and, and ultimately harvest and eat. I wanted to, you know, have that in my in my vicinity here and give back to the neighborhood. And so it's, it's going well. I mean, we're in the very early stages, but uh, it's, it's very exciting. That's a super cool thing. Alice Waters actually did our season one of the podcast. She's an incredible human, as you know. So I've seen you do some Instagram lives and whatnot from, uh, I believe it's your apartment in New York. What What's your strategy when it comes to social media do you use it for fun or for good or to promote a project i mean that's for absolutely everything it's the it's the town hall of our of our era of our day right place you go to socialize and to commune with like-minded people to galvanize energy for, for projects or uh, political reasons and social good so i mean it's really just it's that tool that everybody has to 
it doesn't have to, but can use shit to many different ends. As I mentioned earlier, you have a hundred different social good things that you do or you're involved with, which I'm guessing takes up most of your time these days. But I usually kind of keep the social impact on the back end of these, but I'm I'm moving it up for this because if there's anyone that deserves it to be moved up, it's you. So I want to get started with that. I watched this three minute video that you have on your Lonely Whale page, which I highly recommend to anyone listening because it gave me the chills and any person that I passed it along to to watch, it gave the chills. Tell us about Lonely Whale. What is it and why do you do it? Lonely Whale was created to give people the chill. No, kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we've succeeded. So a good friend of mine reached out to me, uh, Lucy Sumner. She, she's married, so she changed her name. I would get it wrong. I've known her for many years, probably 20, almost 20 years. Uh, we actually learned to scuba dive together and we learned to fall in love with the ocean uh, at the same time from a different perspective under the water. Uh, and then many years later, she reached out to me uh, about a documentary that she wanted me to come on board and help produce about the loneliest whale in the world. And at the time, I was very excited about the project uh, and had done several documentaries and been doing a lot of environmental work. So this particular film and subject was right up my alley. And I agreed to do it under one condition. I wanted to be able to create a call to action that was robust and ready to go. Because what, from my experience, what we would do is make a documentary it would take, you know, two to three years uh, of hard work and passion. And then by the time we were done and we would create some sort of film that, that, that revealed a truth about some system or, uh, something that people ha would maybe hopefully activate on. And, at, and what we would do is put a call to action at the end, but it was sort of an afterthought, right? You know, throw up a website and say, for more information, you know, go to this website. And I always found like those, you know, it was sort of half-baked. So what I wanted to do is be able to create a, a place for people to go once they watched the film, it had a, a legitimate community, had a lot of momentum, and people could actually pour their energy uh, and, and, and into positive change once they've seen the film and were either outraged or their hearts were open and ready to do something for the world. So the idea was I was going to start the Lonely Whale as a nonprofit alongside the film, and then that's what I did. So after you know two two and a half three years now. We're, we're ready to go and we're ready to receive, uh, uh, well, now it's, it's really on its own. It's standing on its own. That's sort of the, the long version of it. But the shorter version is essentially we, we created Lonely Whale as a way to bring as many people into the fold and connect them with one another and bond them with the ocean. Very simple. We, we don't have any really big, large goals. It's really very simple uh, ways of connecting humans to something that's as precious as the world's oceans. And what that does is it gives more people permission to find their own solutions to a lot of the problems that are facing the ocean. We have a mission of radical collaboration. So we bring as many people in, you know, in, into our circle as, as possible. We never do any campaign or 
project alone, we always bring on at least one or more other organizations, sometimes 10, 10 or 20 organizations to accomplish a task. We believe we can't do anything in isolation and, and we can't, we don't want to be too siloed. We want to make sure that we're reaching out and bringing people together. And we want to do things that are very measurable, something that we can actually account for so that we can, we can show our shareholders, our, our donors that we've actually made measurable change. And, and that's what brought us to the single use plastic straw is when we were looking at the 10 million tons of plastic that makes its way into the ocean every year, we could tackle that generally and broadly try and do something that would, uh, you know, address the, the myriad reasons why that's happening. But that is just so big and overwhelming that not only would it be a challenge for us as a small team to accomplish anything, but also what it does in terms of messaging, it, it, it gets people, only the extreme people who are uh, ready to take on that amount of, uh, that big of a challenge, come on board. We wanted to find a way to bring more people to to participate. So we wanted to find a way that was, um, that was, accessible for as many people as possible. So we reduced that 10 million tons down to one unit of measure, the smallest unit of measure, and that is the single-use plastic straw. And we say, if, if we can't do single-use plastic straws, how are we going to tackle the bigger issue? And if we do make some success, if we have some su- success in reducing single-use plastic straws, then we can expand from there. And the single-use plastic straw is something that most people encounter every single day. So it's extremely relatable to our everyday experiences. It's something that's not abstract, that people can see tangibly and and, and see how they personally can, can make a difference, albeit a small difference. But across 8 billion people, I think, you know, if we eliminated plastic straws, it would show that we can really make a difference. And right now we are on path to, to have eliminated 20 billion single-use plastic straws from the waste stream over the next couple of years. I mean, that's not nothing, right? <laughs> so we're, we're very proud. That's, that's incredible. That's, that's brilliant. And I know you work with a brilliant team and brilliant partners. And I was going to ask about progress, which that number's outstanding. Can you just give us an example of some of the partners that you've worked with? I mean, this has been in the media in an incredible way. And I have to believe you and the team have taken a huge charge on this issue. I mean, Starbucks, huge hotel brands, like, I I feel like it spans the globe. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I mean, talk about scale, right? I mean, we've reached acceleration and scale. And it's, continuing to grow um, with relatively little input from us. Uh, you know, we certainly worked very hard in the beginning to get it going, but it, it's the type of concept and the type of ask that sparks the imagination and infiltrates. It's like a piece of code that infiltrates, you know, our, our complacency 
and really transforms the way we see the world. And it was almost, it's like a wedge idea, right? When you, when you look at the, you know, the, the big numbers, like 10 million tons of plastic in the ocean, it's overwhelming. And I think people tend to glaze over and you can't quite conceive of it. It's just too big. The, the scale of it is too hard to relate to. But when you reduce it to something that people can see every single day and they start to notice, oh, there's another straw and another straw. And I've just been offered two straws. And it, and there's like a bunch of straws in, in like to-go container. Uh, you know, the, all of these things start to become very relatable. And so I, I think what we've done is hacked the way we see the problem of plastic pollution. So not only are we able to actually start to reduce the amount of single-use plastic straws that enter the waste stream um, and, and really change behavior and, and start to transform that system, but it's starting to bleed over into other things, right? So if you look at the one-for-one one one model of Tom's, now who isn't doing a one-for-one one model, right? That thing became something that everybody can apply to their different business or, or cause. Well, if you look at the plastic straw movement, which we help to make mainstream, it's now the philosophy and the ideas are starting to bleed into other things. So people are like, well, what about the cup? What about the lid? How can we actually start to change our behavior beyond that? And it was sort of very much intentional to start very small as a baby step and allow that to expand. We're very, very proud of it. And uh, I, I wish I could announce right now what we're up to next, but it's a little premature, probably by a month or so, but maybe we'll do a little follow-up because uh, what we have coming out next is going to be pretty exciting. Awesome. I can't wait. Do you remember the first time or moment that inspired you to give back? You know, I, it, sound, it sounds like a corny cliche, but you know, my mom, yeah, you know, my mom taught me really uh, everything. Every, everything that's good about me comes from my mom. <laughs> yeah. She, uh, she, she taught me at a young age to, to recognize my blessings and to share, uh, you know, in particular with my cousins who didn't have the same means as I did. And so I learned to always share my, my toys and my things. And I was an only child. So, you know, I, I craved community. I craved to have those brothers and sisters and, and so that's, that's how you do it, right? That's how you build the most important thing in the human experience is family and community. So you have to build it. You have to create it. You have to give back. You have to create the reasons for people to thrive and, and contribute and be a part of your community. And I always believe that I think that one of my, I guess, fundamental philosophy comes from the idea that you can't be rich unless your neighbors are rich and you can't be healthy unless your neighbors are healthy. You can't be happy unless your neighbors are happy. I do believe that. So instead of trying to, one of the, one of the flaws in the American dream is it's all about the I and the, and the ego, the me, like how can I get mine or how can I build my dream? But I really think if you build the dreams around you, you know, it becomes your dream. Yeah. So that's, that's how I, I approach everything. How can I, how can I build my dream from the outside from, from like giving to others 
and um, that's it's worked so far. <laughs> I'm I'm happy. I want to ask how do you decide what matters most to you, but then I look at things like you started a movie production company that deals with social good. You you're super into music, and you started a, a record incubator of sorts that if artists come through, they have to do some sort of community work and give back and there's always this tie, I feel like, for everything you do. and But I was really struck mainly because I come from the food space about your partnership through Shift, the lifestyle platform that you co-founded and the partnership you did with Stone Barn Center uh, for Food and Agriculture, the mobile kitchen classroom. I mean, that sounds incredible. Can you explain those? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, unfortunately, mobile kitchen classroom right now is is not in operation uh it's in transition but the idea and i you know i, I plan to revive it um but sometimes you know it's so the 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 incubation period is a, a lot longer for different projects and sometimes things stick and other, other times you know they take longer to manifest but mobile kitchen classroom uh was at the time a, a Inspired by Alice Waters Edible Schoolyard, I was looking to give something back to my goddaughter's high school and something that I wasn't just going to be supported while she was at the school and I was her, I was, I was present, but something that would continue beyond that. So built this organization that was the final stage of a seed to spoon education. So Alice Waters has an amazing program that really teaches kids about the earth and and food systems and cooking and eating from planting seeds to cultivating to harvesting and then ultimately cooking and eating the food that they've created and all the while learning about you know the core curriculum uh, you know lessons through the garden and uh, it was inspiring to me. So I, I thought I could bring a, a edible schoolyard to my goddaughter's daughter, school, but it is so hard with public schools just by way of, you know, all the rules and regulations and the liability issues and working with government um, contractors and that sort of thing. So it just became so difficult and challenging to actually bring an edible schoolyard to a public school that I decided to start something that was off campus, off the school premises. And it was just the last piece, which was the cooking and eating part, which I think is also, you know, if, if you do nothing else, you teach kids how to, uh, the skills, you know, the viable just life skills of being able to feed themselves and understanding how food affects their health and the planet is I think is, is, a, is a hugely important skill that we don't really teach our children. We don't teach them how to find their own nutrition independence so that if they find themselves in a food desert or somewhere that's uh, maybe trying to promote unhealthy food, which is pretty much everywhere, they have the skill to be able to discern between what's good for them and what's not. And they have the skills to be able to, you know, create a healthy, you know, a healthy body for them themselves to, to thrive. So that was the idea is teach them how to cut, use knives, open flames, cook food and make, 
make it make it taste good. So you mentioned your your, your the inspiration your mother was to all this. So talking about, you know, kind of going, taking a couple steps back into early life, you were born in New Mexico and you were raised in New York. Yeah. What was your, what was your family table like as a child? Well, I was raised vegetarian. Yeah. And my mom, my mom was very conscious about what she fed me and us. Uh, I, I learned a lot of great recipes that I still make today. Did you cook as a kid? I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah, my mom let me, she, she gave me, you know, I cooked, yeah, for sure, but not well. It wasn't until I got older that I started to really appreciate cooking, but you know, she, she definitely gave me a foundation. And that was, that was something that I thought, that's something that I think I really benefited from is um, an appreciation for the range of flavors. I, I don't think it's about eating one way or the other. Eating healthy for me is about being able to embrace and appreciate subtlety in food. A lot of times the most unhealthy food are these extreme flavors, right? So very salty or very sugary fried and they totally obliterate the taste buds. I mean, they taste great, right? I mean, you you crave it on some level, but what it does is it eliminates the a, a subtle appreciation for the flavors of healthy food. So when you eat a carrot just on its own, or even a piece of celery or any fruit, it's wildly exciting and flavorful and yummy. And if you can if you can start to hone that appreciation, you can start to appreciate even when something isn't sweet, maybe it's a little bitter or it's, it's subtle and um, you have to really focus and close your eyes and, 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 and find the, the appreciation for a particular foreign food. That is, I think, the most important lesson towards health and nutrition and that's something that my mom gave me. She allowed me to have a range of appreciation so that when I go into a restaurant, I don't just immediately find the saltiest or sweetest fried item. I can actually crave the other food that's more healthy. Go into a vegetarian restaurant or, you know, find a vegan option and really indulge in it and love it. Do you eat meat now or you still have mainly a vegetarian or vegan diet or lifestyle? So I'm very committed to a subtle, uh, balanced lifestyle of, of give and take. So I am, you know, if you look at in the DNA of everything I've done, you know, embodies that principle. So shift was a nudge. Uh, you know, a, a subtle shift in, you know, towards sustainability, not preachy, but really embracing a balance and a, a growth through baby steps. Um, and same with Lonely Well. You know, we are really giving people an opportunity to make big changes through small steps. And then same with, with food and nutrition. I, I see it in the same way. I, I want to have more people participate in a balanced diet where they're not overindulging in unhealthy food and overindulging and overconsuming meat products. 
because that creates a big industry that tends to do uh, often uh, cheap and unethical things for our agriculture and our, and our livestock. So I, I actually have started I've, for the past several years, I've been eating a halfitarian diet. And that's something that, that I created as a way to articulate how I see my relationship to food and animal protein. Uh, if, if everybody adopted a habitarian diet, we would reduce meat consumption by half across 8 billion people. So it would be like there's 4 billion people on the planet who, who eat meat. And that's arguably a more sustainable way of treating our animals and other, having a relationship to meat. So actually I eat um, vegetarian every other day. And then on the odd dates, I, I do allow for meat protein, but of course always trying to source the most um, sustainably raised food uh, meats. And your family has a dried fruit and nut company I saw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, international harvest, organic, uh, gluten-free, kosher. We have a lot of certifications. and I want to check that out for sure. Some of that stuff looked so good. It is so tasty. It is really, really fantastic. Very proud of what my mom and her husband have built. 20, 25, 30 years in the business. That's incredible. I'm for sure going to order a, a whole uh, cart of stuff uh, probably shortly after we hang up the phone. Yeah, good, do. So being based in New York, you must order in, no? Very rarely. Very, very rarely. Really? Yeah. You're cooking or going out to eat, I suppose? I, I love to cook. I do go out, yes. I enjoy uh, dining out. I'm a very social person, so I like being out with the people. Uh, and when I cook, it's usually, you know, for other people as well. I, I, I'm not very good at cooking just for myself. I always end up cooking too much. <laughs> so you'd rather cook for friends than have someone cook for you? You know, it's one of those things where I like cooking with company and cooking either for people or with people. Um, yeah, I, I tend to like things to be a little bit more social. Um, and, and, and I find cooking to be such a, an escape. It's, a, it's meditative. And I, I, I start, it's almost kind of like tantric on some level. You know, I, I start the flirtation at the supermarket. You know, I don't, I don't usually shop for a month. I don't buy in bulk. You know, I don't buy a bunch of food that just sits in the, in the cupboards. Um, I usually cook per meal. So I'll go to the, I'll go to the supermarket and see what's speaking to me off, you know, usually on, on the outer edges of the supermarket just buy what I'm going to cook that night. Yeah. And then, uh, go home and, and by the time I get home, I've already developed that relationship with the food because I've picked it out and put it in my, of course, reusable bag, tote bag and take it home. And by the time I get home, like very close with my food and then cooking it is another level of meditation and just subtle, subtle appreciation for that process. I love your love for food ingredients, cooking the mindfulness of it all. So I have a question during like 10, 12 years ago, during your entourage years, how was your relationship with food then compared to now similar? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, this is something I've been practicing my whole life, you know, starting with 
from a young age when my mom sort of taught me these things. But yeah, I, it, you know, funny enough, I, <laughs> when, when I, I, I um, pre- created and produced a show called Alter Eco for Discovery. And we were basically a, a reality show that was showing young 20 somethings living in LA, trying to live a more sustainable lifestyle. And we did some makeovers, greening of different businesses and that sort of thing. And of course I was shooting entourage at the time. So I would have to, you know, it would make sense to try and do some sustainability upgrades for the set. So we did, we came on, we did a few things, rechargeable batteries for the, for the, you know, the microphones and veggie oil generator for electricity and that sort of thing. And one thing that I, I introduced was healthier food for the craft service table for the crew. And as a symbolic gesture, I, I attempted to get rid of donuts. I never really understood why donuts are this staple for film crews. You know, it's like the least healthy food you can put in your body when you're about to work for 12 hours. It's, you know, a sugar spike and it's a lot of fried stuff. And I, I would imagine film crews probably get less healthy by the end of a, of a, of a production when I think it should be the opposite. So I, so I tried to get rid of the donuts from the craft service table and there was such a revolt. (laughs) (laughs) You would have thought that I asked for everybody's firstborn. They went up in arms. They were like, hell no, don't you, nobody's taking away our donuts. So that was a battle that I lost pretty quickly. I had to concede and say, okay, fine, get your donuts, but we'll have some healthy items as well just to balance it out. That's funny. All right. I'm going to go into a quick speed round and then we could uh, close it out. What did you have for dinner last night? Oh, yeah. Actually, I went out to eat, but they had like a soba soup, like soba noodles and vegetable soup. And then what else did we have? Some avocado nori salad and a couple of like a yam with a sesame sauce on top. It was very tasty. It sounds like a Uchi dinner in Austin, no? Yeah, I, I think they were more eclectic. So they just had a few items of that yeah, sort. Amazing. Usually it would be tacos, though. Not, you know, nine times out of ten uh, meals are tacos when I'm here. But yesterday was unique. Got it. There's some good Japanese going on in Austin, actually. Mm-hmm. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Oh, wow. Oh. Is roasted garlic too cliche? <laughs> no, I love it. That's a great smell. Yeah, come on. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Oh, well, I don't really have this problem because I have a compost system. But when people put food in the garbage after you know a day, starts to really smell. I hate that smell. <laughs> Good answer. Do you have a food guilty pleasure? Chocolate. Last question: Tequila or mezcal? All right. So closing it out, what's the next important move or, or campaign? Like what's the next straw we need to be aware of? Or did you tease that with what's coming up soon and I'm going to need to wait? You will have to wait, unfortunately, but we at Lonely Well are up to something big and we have really gotten a lot of momentum. We have a great community 
So I, I'm really confident that we're going to do really big things this next year. And I'm excited to announce it once I get a chance, once I'm allowed. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. That's awesome. And last question, what advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. You know, I wish, honestly, I wish I would have learned to code. Really? At a younger age. Yeah. You know, the whole world is, is online. Everything's going smart. Yeah, even even all the social media, it all requires a little bit of programming tech, or at least an understanding of it. You can just do more. So I wish I would have learned how to code. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I think all the work you're doing is incredible. I can't wait to hear the big news uh, in the month or so. And you're an incredible example for myself and I'm sure for everyone who's going to tune into this, just how you incorporate social impact and use it as a lifestyle, really, and not just something you do here and there. So the enormity of the work you do is extremely impressive and please continue to do everything you do oh thank you so much and i'm glad to be here quote i always believe that one of my fundamental philosophies comes from the idea that you can't be rich unless your neighbors are rich you can't be healthy unless your neighbors are healthy you can't be happy unless your neighbors are happy thanks again to adrian grenier find more on his lonely whale project at lonelywhale.org Join us next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate, a short segment where our guests describe a dish or a recipe that is meaningful to them. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at OnCaptie's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on Twitter at BT Plate Podcast and Facebook. Season three of Beyond the Plate is made possible with the help of our friends at Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Martin's Potato Rolls are the number one branded hamburger bun in America. And as I like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better. I actually just received a text from my friend Brad last week saying that he walked down the aisle of over 50 plus bread choices and came to Martin's and he knew it was going to be a good day. Martins believes in giving back to their community. They support hundreds of charitable organizations such as food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief, and others. To learn more about Martins, visit their website at potatorolls.com or follow them on social media at potatorolls. Martins, we thank you. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yeaton, and Chant Petrosian. Thank you to Andrew Glatt. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.